Zennial Odyssey podcast, where hosts Remy and Bobby Rocks explore life for people born in the late 70s and early 1980s. Each week, they embark on expeditions exploring their analog childhoods or interview guests about navigating adulthood in a digital world. Join them on another adventure to discover what it means to be a Zennial. All right, welcome back again, everybody. Hey, Rem, how's it going? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, buddy? I'm all right. So Whoa. I'm sweaty. I got to warn the people. I am sweaty. Sweaty. You got sweaty balls. Oh, it is bad. We've had a heat wave. Balls. Oh, yeah, that's without question. We've had a heat wave in New England now for a few days. And even though we're like in a room and it may seem like we got our shit together, it's like 90 degrees in here. Do you, so, know, what, do you know what the worst thing about this heat wave is? Especially what? for someone like me now who has a technically a corporate job. There are days I can wear because of what I do. I can wear t-shirts. I can wear jeans and all that. But the whole point is, in the summertime, I hate wearing like polos, long sleeve shirts, and multiple. Long, well, not long sleeve shirts. Long sleeve, long pants, pants in general. Yeah. I would wear shorts every day if I could. And yes, multiple shirts. I hate doing shit like that in polos. <sighs> but I'm in a, I'm in an environment that is mostly like in, in the 60s. But then once you walk outside and you just get hit with that, <sighs> you're like, I want to fucking die. So if I look too shiny, fuck you. Yeah. Well, hey, whatever. I'd say we'll adjust it out in post, but no, 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 no way to fucking do that. Yeah. All right. So, Rem, let's give a little backstory to this episode. Yes. And the backstory to this episode is about three weeks ago, one of our listeners, his real name is Dave Nielsen. Just Dave. Someone I know from my real life, someone I grew up with. He is a former Marine. He, uh, I don't know if he still does it because he does a lot of stuff with video games. Like he does stuff on Twitch. Yeah. And he makes a living. I'd love to have him on to talk about That's that. That's cool. But when he got out, and he took advantage of um, the loans that you can get for being in the military. And one of the things he did was he started to go to school. And around the same time he started to go to school, he, uh, he did bomb bombing stuff when he was in the oh, military. Wow. So he worked with a canine that That's was cool. trained on sniffing bombs. And when that canine was decommissioned, because, yes, they make it very impersonal and they decommission. They don't retire. They decommission an animal. Oh. And they asked him if he wanted his animal because you're doing what happens if he says no. They put him down. They kill it. So it's to him, it's a brother. To him, it's not an animal. It's a brother. It's somebody who protected him. Yeah. Somebody who saved him. He looks at them the same way he looks at another military prisoner. Of course. Somebody who had his six. It's someone who is family to him. So he brought him in. He retrained him for civilian life, and that didn't take much because he worked with him. Mm -hmm. But he got, like, light bulb went off, and he started to go to school to be somebody who could train other people to teach and train dogs who are getting decommissioned by police departments in the military oh wow to initially to help former soldiers like soldiers with ptsd that's awesome so training the dogs to do similar jobs with similar personnel wow isn't that kind of cool what a way to pay it forward so davy loves the show and every now and then he'll hit me up on the socials and so three weeks ago he sent me a screenshot, I believe, through Facebook Messenger, and the screenshot was of several books by the author Chuck Klosterman. Is it Klosterman or Klosterman? Kloster, I believe. Klosterman, yeah. Because okay. I was going to come on here and just say both because I didn't. I wasn't well, you know, I maybe sure. we're wrong, but let's just go with it. Okay. So the book, the, the one, first one that caught my eye was The 90s, and it's called The 90s, A Book. And you had read and one of the other books, and you had read that book. Mm-hmm. And what was the name of that book? Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs? Yes. That is a, yes, that is the name of it. And, oh, and I think that I became familiar with him. I forgot to mention this through Spin, actually. Yeah, because he, did, he did write for Spin. So um, anyone who doesn't know, little backstory on Chuck Klosterman. Chuck Klosterman is a prolific writer. It's fair to say he's prolific. Oh, dude. He is prolific. He was born in 1972. I'm with you. I believe you. he's 51 years old. He was born in 1972. So he is a Gen Xer through and through. 
He has written 12 books. I've learned this. He's written 12 books. His focus is pop culture. But he's also written, as you said, he's written for, we've said, Spin, Esquire, The New Yorker. He wrote for ESPN. He also wrote with Bill Simmons for Grantland. And by the way, Bill Simmons is somebody who focuses on sports but ties in pop culture references. He is a direct descendant, as a journalist, of Peter Gammons. Oh, wow. Have you ever heard of Peter Gammons? I don't think I have. Okay, Peter Gammons is from Massachusetts. He wrote for the Boston Globe. He was He's a sports writer. He covered the Red Sox. And he was an he was this he was great. He could tie in. He could be talking about the Red Sox and tie in like the song Tommy. Oh, that's cool. And he, or Pinball Wizard. He could tie in things like that to his writing. It was brilliant. Yeah. So someone like Bill Simmons is the direct descendant, and I think Chuck Klosterman is very similar in styles. Okay. Tying in things of pop culture reference to what he's saying. Yeah. So that that's something that tied me in. He recommended this book very similar to the one Jared Burrell recommended to us about Gen Y. Uh, by the way, um, condolences to the Burrell family because his mother uh, recently passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry and, to hear that. did see that on the socials. But Mr. Nielsen uh, gave me this book, and literally my wife and I went out to the nearest Barnes & Noble that does exist. They still do exist. Mm-hmm. And I found this book, the 90s, and I read it in about—I read it in eight days. So it's a pretty hefty book. Too. Yeah, it's 337 pages, but it's a deep three, uh, 337 pages. Yeah. And it goes everywhere with pop culture. So you may ask yourself if we're going to segment this episode. Like, I would never segment. This is just way too much in pop culture. Yeah, let's go with it. Like, he literally is. He goes on these uh, He goes on these rabbit holes of the O.J. Simpson trial and just everything that went on behind that. One thing that references, like, that was, like, the first time we wanted to be part of the news. We wanted to be. We wanted our 15 minutes. He pointed out, like, the Ford Bronco and how people are on the overpass over the holding signs. Yeah, to be supporting seen. him. Yeah, to be seen. Essentially, yeah, supporting whatever, but the point is to be seen. Yeah. Point is to be seen. Look at me, culture. Yeah. He talks about a lot of different uh, things about pop culture. He talks about the, the importance of The Matrix oh. as a movie. He talks about the importance of grunge. He talks about the importance of the 1970s. And just to so, there's so many things I could itemize. He talks about, he says the epitome of, of our love for the 70s and the 90s is that 70s show. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you could just make a show called it That 70s Show and people would watch. And it takes place in Wisconsin, like every other, like a ha- like Happy Days in the 50s took place in Wisconsin. Laverne and Shirley in the 1950s, Wisconsin. a show from the 70s took place in Wisconsin. Yeah. Let's put a fucking show in the 1970s in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Hey, they nailed it too. Like Chuck Costum did a great job of that. One thing, I want to put this disclaimer out here. Unlike the book about Gen Y, and I'm not knocking those authors, they wrote an academic book. And I appreciate that because I like reading academic But Klosterman books. is more... Klosterman's all about conversationalist, pop culturist. And this is where, again, I'm not knocking you guys. This is my takeaway from how you wrote it academically. Academic work, whether it's a book, whether it's actually attending, getting educated, it falls into two major categories. You are either being indoctrinated or you're being taught to be a critical thinker. And and that doesn't mean it, it has to happen that way, but that tends to be, in my opinion, that's my takeaway from when I was getting my education. Yeah. I was either just being indoctrinated in things I was learning or there was there was plenty of opportunity where critical thinking. Yeah, okay, great. You can read a fucking book and remember it. But how do you apply that practically? Yeah. Like so that's where I was kind of getting at with when I was reading Klosterman in my mind. And so that is something I appreciate. That's why it's very hard for me to just kind of focus on these like couple topics. Yeah. So I can gonna, understand that. So what I'm going to do, because Remy, ha- I've told Remy about the book. Yeah, we talked extensively, but like I said, guys, I've been off the grid. And I've been hidden. So yeah. this is more going to be Bob's thing. But 
Huge. But I want I want to say things so I can get Remy's like it, his reaction to him. Yeah, a lot so of it was very interesting from yeah. what you told me so far, and I love yeah. Klosterman. I yeah. recommend people pick him up and just because you feel like you're talking to someone way smarter than you that doesn't make you feel dumb. No, he he's more just like a come on, come on on this ride with me, everybody. So before we start, and I'm gonna bring this up multiple times, like he did. Before we start, there are a couple things I want to lay the groundwork for. One of his themes, and he says it over and over again, is you have to stop looking at the past with your present mindset. Which is very hard Easier said than done. Mm -hmm. And I'm guilty of that. Because when I look back on the 90s, I look back on, depending on what part of the 90s, because I can do that. I was eight years old when the 90s started, and I was 18 years old when it ended. That's just facts. And the, the early part of the 90s, to me, was magical. And the mid '90s and the late '90s was, got more cynical. Was it was not just more cynical? I was. That's when my depression started to set in. Yeah. That's when and I'm developing, and that's where like it just becomes very complex. And just I'm just someone who I felt got lost in the shuffle mentally and emotionally, and I have very um, a mixed bag feeling about that. But if I'm on having a good day today, and I look back on something nostalgically, that 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 good feeling I have will try to. In, into it'll the try memory. to implant itself on a memory that I was not happy. Yeah. And I can, but I, sometimes I can, and it's harder as I get older, but I can be like, no, no, don't do that. That's not what it was like, Bob. Don't lie, don't lie to yourself. Yeah. Don't do that. So that's one thing he, he says over and over again. Another thing he points out, and this is one thing I did say to you, is he says that the idea of the 90s is not limited to 1990. To 2000. Yeah, I loved this. This made a lot of sense. So in in, uh, Klosterman's opinion, the 90s began in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's a very worldwide, that's a large event. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's literally the Berlin Wall separated East and West Germany. Because because Berlin was, Berlin, that's literally the city, Mm -hmm. literally the two countries, because Russia took over one. We're talking the Cold War. We're talking communism. And East Berlin was communist, and there was literally a wall. The wall. And then they had the death line on, on the Russian side, on, mm-hmm. the U, on the USSR side, where there was like 25 feet, and they had like uh, snipers, and they oh, had yeah, barbed wire. They had like all this stuff, so you couldn't leave, or you, they made it very hard for you to leave. And this separated a country, this separated literally ideals of East and West, of communism and capitalism. And eventually, capitalism won. Mm-hmm. And literally the wall fell and people celebrated. And we got one of the most glorious, cringeworthy things ever. David Hasselhoff. We got David Hasselhoff wearing his Knight Rider jacket. Now with literally like a fucking nightlight lights on the back. And he's on the top of the wall that hasn't been torn down. I'm talking about freedom. Like, oh. German people love David Hasselhoff. They fucking love him. Yeah. He tours every year. And he's an icon. But anyway. They also liked Hitler though, so... <laughs> Well, certain moment. I know. I'm just being a dick. So that's when the idea of the 1990s starts. So we're still in the 80s. Yeah. And the 90s follows the 80s. But you're already seeing it. You're seeing glam music dying. Yep. You're seeing less techno colors. Mm -hmm. You're seeing, yep. And on the other end, the the end of the 90s, uh, the the feeling and the idea of the 90s is 9-11. Is September 11th, 2001. Like that is just, it's a dividing. We talked about that. Yeah, when you told me that, it gave me yeah. chills. Like, that's so we've, fucking we've accurate. We've talked about how it's a dividing line just for our society, for people, are all that. He's saying, no, the, the idea of the 90s continued into the to 2000s, and then 9-11 just really just said, no. Oh. That was over. Yeah, it's not working. 
So that's some things we're going to play, but I'm going to talk about some things. There's too much to talk about in one episode. Yeah, but it's I, a lot. And I, I would rather people go read this book. It's a phenomenal book. It came out in 2020. And I'm taking it home to read it, so. Yes, I gave Remy my copy. It, it, it frees up some clutter in my house that my wife's probably happy about. Cool. cool. <laughs> All right, but we'll get into it. So the first thing I'm going to cover is I'm going to cover the year 1991 to 1992 because it doesn't matter if we're talking pop culture, music, or politics. Iconic years. It was iconic time. Mm-hmm. Rem, do you know who the president was in 1991? We either had an old Bush or a young Clinton. It was an old Bush. Okay. It was George Herbert, Herbert Walker. Walker Bush. That's what I thought. And he had an approval rating. 81 or in something. The, in, the, in the 80s. Yep. He had, we had just gone into a war with... Uh, Iraq, mm-hmm. because they were invading Kuwait. And this was the first time that war was covered on site. Yeah, yeah. 20, yeah. 24-7 Journalism. by CNN and C-SPAN. Because Fox News was really just starting in the 90s, and so was MSNBC. Yep. And so, and they were driving the narrative, because they were just showing how we were just firing missiles. They weren't, like, following the soldiers as much. And when you do that, you just, it makes the world war look like the Terminator. Or a video game. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's things that Klosterman talks about. And he talks about how it just made it look like we were like surgeons. And the war literally ended in like 90 days. Yeah, I remember that. It was over very quickly. And you would think after that, that this president, who already had an approval rating that was approaching 90%, yeah. was going to win in a landslide. Because the, the, the election was literally a year away. Yeah. And he lost. So what happened? And this is one thing that Klosterman talks about. How did that happen? What was going on around that time? So let's stick with the politics of the time. All right, yeah. Because he does something very good. Because, yes, we had, for the Democrats, William Rodham Clinton. Billy Clinton, yeah. yeah. And Bill Clinton. And this is why one thing that he talked about, one thing that Klosterman talked about, I'm not going to make this its own standalone. I'm going to talk about it through everything. Yeah. Is he said in the 90s, we had an obsession with the 70s. That's nothing new. That tends to be what we do as people. Like people in the 80s were in love with the 60s. Mm-hmm. People in the 70s were in love with the 50s, stuff like that. So it's like a natural thing. And even right now, think about it. We just saw Batman with Michael Keaton. So right now, the 90s and early 2000s are there. But this is an area where I I will slightly disagree with Klosterman's assessment. Yeah. Because do you remember? I remember as a 10-year-old child, I remember what people were saying about Clinton. Do you remember what president they were comparing him to? They were comparing him to Kennedy. Exactly. And Kennedy was 1960 to 1963 until his assassination. Charismatic, handsome, well-spoken. To the point, do you remember? I remember this. This burned in my brain. On election day, do you remember Bill Clinton? He voted in D.C. And then he went to Arlington National Cemetery and he visited Kennedy's grave. Uh, Because he knew. And did the whole hand by the eternal Photo. Yep. Yep. Like, I mean, come on. He's aligning himself with Kennedy. he, He was positioned by boomers as... The modern day Kennedy. And he cheated like Kennedy. He did. He did. I think he cheated more than Kennedy. Probably. He just yeah. lived in a time where he got caught. Well, he cheated worse than Kennedy because yeah. at least Kennedy cheated with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Now, Klosterman points out something because something happened that really hurt. And it was one of the first times ever that somebody really on this level did it is that we had a third party candidate come, come in. And do you remember that third party candidate? Ross Perot? Yes. I'm yes. Ross Perot. I'm here. I'm little yeah. and I'm mad. So... One thing Klosterman does is he shows how Ross Perot really gives you, if you think about it, he gives the foundation for how Trump ran. Okay. Because he's a, he's a billionaire. Bravado. He's bravado. He's an outsider. Mm-hmm. But that's where the comparisons end. No, but I immediately. That is where the comparisons end. Because yeah. ideologically, they are fundamentally different people. 
But he was attacking. He was attacking Bush. He was not attacking Clinton. And so all Clinton had to do was sit back. Like, one thing he points out is Clinton never had to get aggressive, never had to go on the attack. Yeah. Because he had Ross Perot to do that. Ross Perot got 19 million votes. Comparatively to what would the, what's the number of winning? So, it's, remember, it's the Electoral College. He didn't win any electoral votes. Yeah. But he, got, he essentially got 10% wow. of all votes that people had voted. I mean, not bad for a little firecracker. And after reading everything I did, I probably would have voted for him. Really? Because of what he stood for. He, he stood for things like, yeah, we all would love to pay less taxes, but let's stop just increasing taxes to give money to all this stuff. Why don't we start investing in ourselves, in our country? Yeah. Like that, that right there is, is somewhat, Trump was kind of doing that stuff, but he was doing it more in a Reagan way. So did let's per- get back to making America great. So again. did Perot, um, was it almost like a, a forebearer of Bernie Sanders? No, because he was actually very, I think ultimately when you look back on the way that Clinton, how his presidency was, yeah, I think Ross Perot was similarly aligned to him. Oh, interesting. Like Ross, so what I mean by that is Bill Clinton became basically a center left All right. president. Yeah, that makes sense. Like he moved away from like democ- the Democrat side and he moved towards, but he didn't go become Republican. He just moved to the center. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got a lot of stuff done, especially in his first term. Ross Perot was more of a, like a right center as I keep hitting that, but that's my okay. bad. But he's more of a right center guy. He's like libertarian. He's okay. a little bit, he's a libertarian. There you go. Uh, did, did you know? I found this fantastic. Did you know that at one point, because he was funding at this his entire I know, himself, I do remember that. Uh, that he left, he left the election. He withdrew, and then he re- entered, re-entered, like in, like two months before the election. Was it because of funding? Fantastic. Nobody knows. No, Nobody cool. knows. He just he just did that. Yeah, it was just wild. It's stuff that people kind of look at in the '90s and be like, weirdo. Yeah, weirdo. Like, but you know. I find that if Trump did something like that today, it would be looked on positively. People like he's yeah. so brave. We don't do politics. But anyway, what else happened in, especially in the fall of 1991, specifically on the same day? Some of the best record drops in history. On the same day, I believe it was September 26th, 1991. Most likely a Tuesday, believe it or not. Yes. That's when they did release it. tended to be Tuesday was the day to drop an album. We had Nirvana's Nevermind drop. We had the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And we had Low End Theory. All three of those albums came out on the same day. And then Chuck Klosterman goes into this, he goes on this lovely uh, ride about uh, grunge and about how just the zeitgeist, the spirit of grunge and the spirit of this musical movement is Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. And you know what? Because he talked, there was great music that we just showed how much great music was coming out, especially in grunge. Because yeah. Pearl Jam dropped 10 very shortly after very that. Very short. Sound, Soundgarden and Allison Chains Bad dropped Bad Motorfinger um, yep, and, um, and um, Facelift. Dirt and Dirt. Oh, oh, Facelift you're came right. out in 1989, and Dirt came out in 92. And we need to talk just for a second about the sonic leap between Facelift and Dirt. Yes. Dirt starts. Because the hair metal. They're, they're, they're hair, metal to hair metal to painful grunge. Yes. Yeah. Awesome music. But the four, the four bearers of grunge are Nirvana. Yeah. And he talks about how grunge is the last, it is the last time that rock music has reigned. Has 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 reigned supreme. Has brought something different to the table, and is innovative. Agreed. It's, it's truly the last time. And he also talks about how Kirk hated that. Mm-hmm. Like Kirk, Kirk hated because he saw that he saw the writing on the wall that he alienated his people, because then everyone the influx to Seattle it was it was the, the mecca at yeah, the time. Yep, yeah, and it just tore the scene apart. 
Like all you had to do was wear fucking flannel and you would you would become uh, an act well, signed was, by a major label. Wasn't it Guess that did a, like a grunge line? Yes. And yep. it was like that was the moments when you realized the thing that you were naturally was commodified. Yep. And he hated that. And, you know, he came from a tortured life. He did not have the greatest of lives. No, no, it's no, bad. He didn't. Uh, and at the same time, as his life is winding down because he took his own life, uh, you have a new art form ascending. And that is hip hop. Yeah. And, and low in theory is just one of the many. Pick, take your pick. No, well, keep in mind, we know that rap is Brooklyn based out of the 80s. We're native, talking native tongue. We're type talking, of stuff. we're talking the birth, the true birth of hip hop. Like where West Coast, re like where basically NDA, N NWA splits and everyone starts making their own records and showing how they're all individually like kick ass hip hop artists on a different coast away from New York City. Guys like Jay Z are coming up. Yep. Like it's, it, it was nuts. And to have the, like you said, exposure to low end theory. Far Side, The Chronic, Doggy Style. It was a time. He focused on Tupac Shakur because he said, like, if you think Tupac about it. Tupac was the rap yeah, Cobain. Yeah, that's what he said. That, very good rap. That's what he says. Oh, he cool, said, he cool. said that they were the equivalents and they both died young. Both died at relatively the same age. However, they both, like, if you think about it, uh, did Kurt Cobain, like, did he openly, like, present, I came from, like, a rough upbringing uh, all this, or was it just more? I'm presenting my feelings on, on where I'm at right the now. The latter. Yep. What, now, what did Tupac present? He I had a truth. I had a hard a life. I have a hard life for all these reasons. But one thing Chuck brings up: Did Tupac really have that hard of an upbringing? Okay, I don't want to say no because I don't want to be canceled. But no, did, did he, he was did, at a private school. I was going to say, is it as is it as rough as he presented it? No. That then that's what Chuck is saying. Was he born in a jail cell to a Black yes. Panther? Yes, he was. Yes, yes, he was. Okay, yep. a Fanny Shakur, mm -hmm. very strong woman. But then she was like, "I'm gonna give him the life mm -hmm. I didn't have." Yes. So if you can find pictures of of Tupac in high school, he's not your Tupac. No, he's in a business suit no. with a tie. His in his into the industry was as a backup dancer for, for the Digital Underground. Digital Underground with Humpty Hump. Yeah. And, and, and again, yeah, because I agree with you. Like, I'm not saying that he did no hardships. He, of course he had hardships. But what, and if you even see interviews that Tupac did, where he said he had to go seek it out. Yeah. He had to go seek it. He sought it out. I'll give him credit for that. He sought it out. And he gave a voice to that life, though. And he did. And it ultimately cost him his life. Everything. It cost him everything. And, and ultimately cost him his life. But, like, what Klosterman says is, neither one of them painted the picture of who they really were. Agreed. At their heart of hearts. And then he also says, and this is where I'm going to bring it back away from the cancel end, is that, and the shame of it is, is they were very similar people who were very complex people who were um, paradoxes, but we, we give more focus to the white artists than the black artists. It's true because yes, in the nineties, you know what? You wow, know that's what our, heavy though. We got to sit with that for a moment. But do you know what our boomer parents were saying about Tupac's death in the nineties? He deserved it. Yeah. He got what he deserved. You live that life. You know, you play he with was a thug, you play with fire, you get burned. I think the real theory with Pac, at least for me, and I've talked to other people about this regarding... He doesn't his, dive into it, but he... He touches on he it. He touches on it. But I feel like... Um, I think a lot of people who have talked about it and people who maybe have more insight into that lifestyle, there are people who think Pac was killed because he had more reach to black youth than any politician, than any person. He was essentially becoming in a position of power. And white people or whatever were like, no, nah, this can't happen. He's yeah, Ch dangerous. Chuck doesn't, he doesn't go to like the conspiracy, like he talks about it, but he kind of talks about it in a sense of, we can't really prove it though. Yeah. So it's just, it's just, hearsay. it's hearsay. And I, he, sometimes he says hearsay. And I think that, you know, once you talked about these two, Cobain and Tupac, 
those motherfuckers probably would have had the best conversation had they met each other. They had. They did. They did? They, they have, yeah. Very, very, like only once, but That's very cool. briefly. That makes me happy. And there is a picture. No he, did, he, didn't, he didn't talk about it, but he, he talked about it in the book. But um, there is a picture. I got to look that up. I believe it's a picture. Yeah. But yeah, so this was literally 91 and 92, like, because Tupac's first album dropped in 92. Yeah. All Lies on Me? No, that was his uh, last album where he was alive. Okay. I think it was, uh, was it Tupacalypse Now or was it the one before that? I'm not going to even try. Yeah. yeah, I already fucked up. No, it's okay. But so we have all this thing because people who would, uh, people of that age are the early to middle people of Gen X. Oh, wow. Like Chuck. Chuck even said he was, a, he was in college. He was a teenager or he was in his 20s. Yeah. And all of these people are people who can vote. And all these are people who people with a vote, voice. And where's MTV? Rock the vote. Mm -hmm. Choose or lose. You remember that? Slogan? Well, that's why Clinton won. Choose, and that's another reason why. Because it's aligning. This is your president, Gen X. He went on Arsenio and played oh, saxophone. And like he the knew. The most cringeworthy thing. But you know what? He killed it. And he'd have pictures taken eating at McDonald's and shit. And people mm -hmm. were like, oh, I get this motherfucker. Yep. Oh, he's, he's an everyday asshole like me. And he smoked weed but didn't inhale. Sure, Billy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a great one. I did not inhale. I kept just it like, in my cheeks. Just like, I did not have sex, sex with that, that woman. Women. Yeah, he was, he, accountability was an issue yeah. for that man. So he talks about the, the idea of uh, grunge, and he really aligns it to things about around that time of Gen X. Like Gen X, a big ethos of Gen X is be authentic and don't be a sellout. And we're not finding good, good jobs. Yeah. We're very unhappy people. Yep. Very cynical people. Grunge caught that in yep. time. And grunge picks that up. As he says, it's the, funny, it's the fuzziness of the 70s heavy metal. Like Black, like Black Sabbath would be the one you would think of. Yeah. And on top of that, it's, it's dingy music that matches the geographic area that it Rainy, comes from. gross. Yep, Seattle. And if you're born in Aberdeen where Kurt was, you either work in logging or you learn how to play instruments and hope your band blows up. Yep. That's why people like so many people from Seattle, yeah, there's nothing to do out mm -hmm. there. And if you don't cut down trees, you better at least know how to play a couple chords. Now, uh, would you think that he would even touch upon the movie singles? I would hope he didn't. Yeah, I would hope and that. He just, and the reason he didn't is he did touch upon it by saying, yeah, everyone just moved to Seattle and put on flannel so they could get on a major label. And then everyone moved there. And then we made a movie about it. And, and uh, some of the artists took a pair of it. They, and he says that they asked Kurt and Kurt said, fuck you. I believe it. Yep. Whereas he also talked about how Kurt would openly like talk shit about Eddie Vedder. Oh, yeah. They had a yeah. weird just but, because. But, but they, they ended up being pretty cordial. And, but the shit that Kurt would talk about Eddie, Eddie would be like, well, yeah. You just be like, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm not as good as them. Yeah. We're not a punk band. Yeah. All this shit he's saying. You guys saying. are just trying to sell records. He's like, well, yeah. And then, like, right, but ultimately, right. yeah, I heard that. And I heard that Kurt was like, later in his life, he was like, I was too hard on that dude. Yeah. Yeah. And then they reconciled. But because uh, I bring that up because Eddie Vedder was in the movie singles. Yeah, he was. So was uh, Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell, Lane Staley. Yeah, Lane Staley was in that. They they fully embraced that. But Matthew Kurt, Sweet might have been in it. Yeah. But then, but Kurt was someone who was like, nah. I won't do it. Kurt was like, I am not about that. And he tried to hold on to that. And he hints that that probably played a pretty significant role in him taking his own life. Yeah. Like just, I can no longer live this. Now I've like, I've basically napalmed my own life. And I've become the enemy. Yes. I I've become what I who I made fun of. Yep. And the only way I can end it is by ending it. Yep. And I thought that was very powerful and very true. And it also shows the difference between him and Tupac. Like Tupac was murdered. Yep. Kurt murdered himself so, for lack of a way of putting it. Well, if Courtney, but, yep. but that's another discussion. <laughs> Yes, the early 90s, again, this is the time when Gen X is, is, is coming to adulthood and shining. And uh, he talks about things like also Seinfeld, 
Yeah. Seinfeld, he says Seinfeld is the show you think would be the show that is the representation of Gen X. But he says, do you know the show that ends up being the representation? Friends. Yes, Friends. And, and I mean, I'm not a friend, yeah. not like some people. Which show did my sister, my sister is a Gen X. And what show did my sister, my sister watch? Friends. Yeah. Or Beverly Hills 90210. And he brought that up a little bit too. That's true. That they were, those were the shows that were huge. And, and, and to be fair, because this is the way he pointed it. Because when we look back on Friends, we think that everything is iconic. They weren't trying to be iconic. They just wanted to make like money. The, Ra the Rachel haircut wasn't meant to be iconic. It was just a hairstyle. And people loved. And it took on a mind of its own. That band, I'll Be There For You. Yeah. It was literally a 30-second song, and then they had to add another chorus because they had to become a real song in 1995. Yeah, remember that? And I bring those things up because it didn't start out that way. That's a theme that comes up for Gen X in the 90s. This isn't, this, we're just being ourselves. And then you ran with it. Yeah. And made it into what it was. You know what else? Like, I think that um, when I think about iconic 90s shows that captured the 90s and captured that time, you know what my first thought is? What? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's more late, line, late 90s, though, because that was 98 or 97. No, no, it was on, that was on. Well, oh, you I mean was... the movie? You no. mean the Christie Swanson? Oh, you're right. The yeah. show did the movie Because the movie later. was 92 with Paul Rubin. Okay. Yeah, that was 92. Yeah. Uh, oh, might... and uh, Luke Perry. That might be the 90s, oh, you're Luke right. Luke Perry, may you rest in peace. Let's move on to the next kind of thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, for sure. So he talked about how the single sonic leap for technology oh. in the 90s was the internet. People forget that that's yep. when that appeared. He also says that the internet is the most overrated thing to come out of the 90s. And as Remy, you pointed out, the internet, when it first started, was literally just like encyclopedias online. I mean, and, and like there'd be chat rooms where you'd just be like, hey, and people would be like, hey, that was it. <laughs> and then someone would get disconnected. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, oh, you don't want, oh, well, you're an asshole. And then it's like 20 minutes later, hey, sorry, I'm back on. And then it's like, and then they're back off. And then it's just. And people don't realize, too, internet was metered at first. Yeah. You paid to use it like five days a month. Yep. And if you, if like your kid got up at midnight and used it for nine hours, your phone bill would have been like. <gasps> 850 bucks yeah and he talks about things and this is one thing that blew my mind so do you remember uh you obviously know ted kaczynski of course the unabomber, unabomber yeah. his manifesto which the fbi worked with like the new york times and the washington post yeah and they both posted his manifesto in total and uh you know the story of how his brother recognized his uh his mannerisms and his writing the handwriting yep and uh that's how he figured out it was his brother do you know how he got a hold of all that email Oh. Somebody sent him an email of the manifesto. Wow. Yeah. Somebody scanned like the was scanning the manifesto. Yeah, you had to like yeah. page by page. Page by page. Yeah, old school PDF. Yeah. Old school PDF. Yeah, that's what it is. And that's how he got it. So and and um he brings that he brought up the Unabomber because the Unabomber's manifesto was about how technology is going to destroy us. Like we're we're go, we're going to destroy ourselves with technology. And he hints at while what he did is heinous, he wasn't entirely wrong. No, he was wrong gone. with what he did, but not with what he said. But he says that even though he only mentions the internet once in his entire manifesto as a casual kind of offhand comment, yeah. he says he was really talking about the internet. The internet is really the technology that's yeah, going to take us down. I mean, people may hate him, but Kaczynski was genius level. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, the Unabomber literally just, he, he lived in off, the off grid in Montana or Colorado, and he made bombs, he mailed them out and killed, he didn't kill a lot of people, but he hurt a lot of people. But he would do that. And he was he was on the run for like yeah. 20 years. I mean, literally, you're talking about that. a fully bearded hobo living out in the woods. Yeah. So it was completely free. Not always in a good way. No, 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 exactly. No. But he also, so going back to Klosterman. So he takes that tie-in. And he's talking about the early days of the internet. And he talks about chat rooms. And he talks about how 
the early parts of the internet were they gave you when it really started to explode with Netscape and more with Netscape, but more so with Google mm -hmm. in the late nineties. But he talked about how we could, you could create your own anonymous personality, but that with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, yeah, there and with that comes fear because now we are more connected. Now our privacy, we have less privacy. We are not as protected. And this is where society comes. This is one of the things he says throughout the whole thing. This is where society comes in. One thing that came out of the 90s, it's, it started in the 80s, but it really started to pick up momentum in the 90s where news media started to drive the narrative. 100%. Instead of, instead of just objectively reporting the news. Which and started with? Which started with, well, it started with Fox News and MSNBC coming on the board. Because now I we would have, even say Waco was when now it really we have started. Multiple. He touched on Waco and Ruby Ridge. Uh, but he he was very neutral. He didn't take a stance. He just said, "Look, this is these are things that happened. These are things the news can't figure out things. So the news is just making up stuff. They're assuming. They're yeah. making up stuff and assuming. And that happens with the internet. So they play a lot on fear in the '90s. And it's not just. Um, I would argue because he talks about it. He talked about Dolly the the lamb. Oh yeah, the first the first cloned time animal. we successfully cloned somebody, or no, not somebody. We cloned something. A living thing. We cloned a living thing in the '90s. Yeah. And he talked about Dolly. But it's, I would say that in the internet, those are sonic leaps Agreed. for science and technology. And do you know what our response was? Bill Clinton actually put a bill before the Congress to say it was illegal to clone people. Yeah, I heard about that. And like that's and and Congress was like, we're not, that's absurd and we're not doing it. And ultimately everyone's like, oh, is this lamb a freak of nature? All this stuff? It's like, no, the lamb lived for seven years and died of natural causes. They just like, made a lamb. Yeah, they made a lamb. They cloned something. He also pointed out how he finds it stupid that no one talks about identical twins because that's like Clones. nature's clone. Yeah, like, that's you know. true. And he said that they, they positioned it like it was uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh. Yeah. That's, a, like, like that's, that's the angle they go a with. freak with mutant. Stuff. Yeah. And then on top of that, we have other technological leaps, not just the internet. Do you remember Biosphere 2? No. So, rich guy, and I have his name in my notes, I forget it. But he says how the 90s was the first time that really wealthy people decided that they could do stuff as well as the government. And that at times they crossed that line of we could do it better or we, we know what's best for everybody. Like what just happened with the Titan. Yes, exact. Thank you. Thank you. So Biosphere 2 was a group of spheres that was made in the desert of Arizona. And it was literally made to be self-containing like an earth because Biosphere 1 is earth. Um, so I mean, they made one dome for it to be a rainforest. So that's what biodome was about. Or biosphere, yeah, and that's where I was gonna go. I was gonna go with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Because he does talk about he, he dedicates two pages to Pauly Shore in the book. He's kind of iconic. Yeah. But these are all the reasons I'm gonna give you guys to read the book because I don't want to spoil those. I'll tell Remy off here. But anyway, yeah, biosphere too. Like literally, like they had to create their own oxygen too. So how how it long was, did it last? Or? It was supposed to last two years, and it lasted about two years. But at one point, they had to start pumping oxygen in. Oh, wow. Because, in the, because the, the sweet spot's around like 22% of the atmosphere out is air, yeah. is oxygen, and it dipped to like 14%. So Which, it's like they're in the Alps. Yeah, yeah, it gets dangerous. So they had to start pumping in air, so it's no longer an experiment. Yeah. It's, so in, in intense, all intents and purposes, the experiment failed. Wow. And then there were eight people that were living in there, and then they formed factions. Oh, my and they, God. And they didn't, like, it wasn't anarchy. They were just more like, we're hanging out with these people. You're hanging out with Democrats, their... Republicans. Yeah, yeah. So so I would say on that hand, it's kind of a success. It worked. Because that's what happens in reality. Yeah. Uh, it's just the way you meant it didn't work out. And uh, the cool thing about that is Columbia University took it over and ran it for eight years. 
No kidding. And they ran it as like a museum, but they ran it to do experiments in the different environments. Oh, that's cool. Related to global warming and stuff like that. Yeah. So I would say its legacy is that, you know, because it, it went from like 1993 through 1994. Well, and then, least... yeah, Coinky Dink, 1995, Biodome comes up. Yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. But at least um, it wasn't like the Titan. People weren't risking their lives in that, you know, which is good. No. And they tried to do it again in 1994. And Steve Bannon was the one who was like driving it. Steve Bannon, who helped Trump. Yeah, yeah. He was part of Trump's team. And that thing literally lasted 10 days. And then they all just walked out. Wow. Then we don't really talk about that. But he mentions that in the book. But let's tie it into Pauly Shore. Because in 1995, someone just handed Pauly Shore and one of the Baldwin. Steve Baldwin or Billy Steve, Baldwin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Baldwin, the weakest. Yeah, yeah. That's the family guy says. <laughs> yeah. They just hand them this and say, here's Biodome. Yeah. Go do stupid shit. Go be yourselves. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so, Rem, I want to pose this question to you. What was more successful, Biodome or Biosphere? Biodome. Oh, I would agree. I would, I would agree. <laughs> I can't believe I stopped to I think. Would agree, I was yeah. afraid it was a trick question. Yeah, I would agree with that. I wish I had the, uh, I wish I had the effect turned up. I had applause. That's all good. Because uh, I was like, yeah, woohoo, yeah. I, I missed those little yeah, details. I do, <laughs> I do too. Uh, so, yeah, that's where technology was going. We have rich people thinking they know what's best for everybody. And that started a trend yes. of rich people believing the same yep. shit. Yeah, by the way, do you know how this guy got rich? Theater. Which guy? The guy who, who funded Biosphere. Doing live, live Doing with like Broadway? Broadway, all that stuff, yeah. Um, Sounds like an interesting person regardless. Yeah. But the last thing I just want to touch on real quick that he touched on, especially the mid-90s, yeah. is he touched on how the mid-90s was really a lonely, depressing and miserable place. And when I read that part of the Mid book- Mid to late, right? Yeah. yeah. When I read that part of the book, I got chills. Because it brought up shit for you. Because it just, it, it hit how I felt from 1995 to 1999, to varying degrees. Yeah, my best friend killed himself in 99. Yeah, 95 and 96. And eh, kind of 97. Yeah. Those two plus years were some of the most worst and miserable of my life. Man, I know that, man. I, mean, I know yeah. that place. And it's a lot of it was because one thing he brings up is, one thing that is like a paradox for Gen Xers is, is the anti-establishment, well, like, like he used like popular. Being mm -hmm. pop, like, no, not he does bring up Nata Surf. I was going to say this but, song, yeah. But he brings up, like, you know, you don't, being popular is uncool, but you still want to be popular. Mm -hmm. That's, let's, let, let's, let's all just remove that veil of bullshit. You could be the most anti person or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm and cool. All, yeah, I'm cool and all that. And at deep down inside, you, you just want to be a trendsetter cool. Yeah, you want to be sitting at the cool kids' table at lunch. Mm -hmm. And that's something I struggled with because you know what? I wasn't cool. I was quirky. I had my things. Yeah. On top of like, so it made it even more lonelier at times for me. At that time was also was one of the things you had to deal with was like planning on going to college or figuring mm -hmm. out what you were doing after. And, with, and you had to deal with legit bullying and hazing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And you had to deal with it with boomer parents just saying suck it up or kick their don't ass. Don't be a or, bitch. Don't, yep. be a, don't be a pussy. Always. So what you do, you internalize. 100%. You just internalize things and then you get ulcers and mental illness. Then you get manic depression. Yeah. And, and Chuck and, didn't go that deep into it, but he hit on it in a way where it just, I was, I was like, thank you. And if, I mean, if I may, obviously, I think that just the grunge movement in itself sums mm. up. Yes. We were young. And what happened was our parents went from hippies to yuppies very easily. Mm -hmm. The house you were in that you lived in cost them 25K. And we suddenly saw this big spike, not like lately, lately it's been far worse, but a big spike where the houses that they were getting for 25, back then we had to spend 150. Now it's a million. Mm -hmm. But we saw that, and we also saw the prospect of 
We don't want to go be in $200,000 debt, college fucking loans without knowing there's something out there. So Mm -hmm. do we go to college, be miserable? Do we not go to college and learn a trade and get miserable? It's the worst fucking time because you're figuring out where your next 10 years will be. Do you know what he does towards the end of the book is he talks about American beauty. Yeah. And he talks about he, one thing he does that he does a disservice to it. He does not acknowledge that it's satire. It's sat- you can agree. It's, oh, a, yeah. it's satire. To an extreme extent. It's, 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 yeah, it's subtly extreme satire. Mm-hmm. Now, he talks about the reason we can't support Kevin Spacey, but he also says that he talks about it like it's real. Like in modern times, you can't obsess about your daughter's 16-year-old friend. No, it's I, You can't obsess about your daughter's 16-year-old friend at any time. That exists outside of time. But he, ta- but he also says that if you think about it, what we're going on in American Beauty represents kind of what was going on for the Clintons. Yeah. And really what represents what was going on for white upper middle class people. That was their life. That's a suburban anyway. Yep. Unhappy, unlovable marriages where people just, you know. The kids ignored. Yep. There's another thing. You just brought that up. And I I wanted to tie that into this because that that plays a part. What if I make a beat? That's actually actually sounded kind of cool. That actually sounded really dope. Um. But yeah, and I think the thing about American Beauty, you realize, you're like, oh, we watched that, and it was normalized. It is scary to think that, like, um, at the end of the movie, he almost fools around with a teenage girl. And on top of that, though, and it's a satire, like, don't exploit teenage girls, but then it has that girl in the movie show her tits. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure she was young, dude. I'm pretty sure that the meaning behind, by the way, spoiler alert for American Beauty, the meaning behind, you know when it's showing what everyone's doing when you get shot? Yeah. Like, do you know how she's, like, in the mirror and all that? I think she's just prepping herself for the next act. Oh. That's how I've always seen that. That's cool. I've always seen that as that's, that wasn't genuinely her crying. That was, I, well, I think it was her being rejected. Yeah. And she wasn't used to being rejected. But I also see it as, okay, well, it didn't work. But um, I, don't think he's, I don't think he's 100% going to say no. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. She's just putting, she's putting, literally putting makeup on, putting herself back together. And nice, nice thought. And yeah. we've already talked about how, like, you know, because where we're going right now on the timeline, how Fight Club then was really a big decade you know, he ender. Only, he only mentions, like, four words about Fight Club. That bums me out. Yeah. Because I feel like we did a whole episode about how mm-hmm. it did a lot for the male generation to figure out, first of all, our sensitivity. The movie's about hugging motherfuckers and telling them everything is going to be okay. You know? Yeah. But it's hidden behind a veneer of violence and machismo. So again, it's hidden behind reality. But sadly. again, you have a satire that's wickedly mm-hmm. misunderstood. I, I want to give him credit and just say because I think for his the era of Gen X that he is, yeah. that it doesn't resonate the way it does for, for us. us. That's fair. Yes, that's and that's where I want to be fair to him because he talks about other things like he did talk about and, and you can read about those and if you've read those books and seen those movies, yeah, he talks about those resonating with people his age. Okay, and that was like mid nineties. And reality bites that that more. That he just shit, says right? that that's more like a. This is what Gen X wanted to be, but it's like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately, like, she became a sellout when she sold out her friends with the documentary. Like, yeah, no, it's a good yeah. point. And that's the heart of the yeah. story right there. Mm-hmm. And she goes for the guy who's going to treat her terribly as opposed to the guy who's going to treat her well. Yeah. I don't think I give a Ben Stiller enough credit for, like, no, he's the stuff he did, the he's stuff great. he did in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. That but, was when he, he did Permanent Midnight. Mm-hmm. Like even, he, even the, what was it, Heavyweights? Yeah. Which, listen, Heavyweight's a throwaway movie, but he was good in that movie. But it's like, you realize yeah. now, you're like, wow, is that a movie where Ben Stiller just picked on fat kids for two it was. hours? It was. But let's be honest, he recreated it when he did Dodgeball. Everyone says that. Yeah. He brought it full circle. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a couple more things, because sure. I know we're getting to the end of it. Had you mentioned something he had said about Radiohead, or am I wrong? Oh, I did. Okay. Uh, it was because in the book, when he's talking about cloning, yeah. 
and he very briefly mentions Kid A, just like the whole album was, was about cloning. Was this atmospherically different album from anything they did? He actually said it was OK Computer. Yeah. People say Tom York wrote about cloning and evolution, and he actually got to talk with uh, Tom York. Yeah. And Tom York just said, nah, it was just all nonsensical bullshit that I was talking about. That's cool. So all these people that have these ideals in there about what OK Computer could be about. He just wrote an album. He, yeah, just like, oh. But I would say if he was like a, I don't, I don't want to tear down Tom York. I'm not trying to. But if he's he was pretentious, you can. If he was a, if he was a good artist, he would also back that up like other good artists do and say, but what you, what it means to you matters more than what it I meant agree. to me. I've, I feel like uh, we've, we've kind of talked about what is good for this book because I want people to read this book. I'm reading it this week, and, and Remy's gonna read because I gave him my copy. Uh, I'm gonna reach out to Dave just let you know. I, I think I'll give Dave an early kind of listen to some of the stuff we talked about. Yeah, I'm not sure if he, he didn't read the books. But he he actually heard Chuck do an interview. Oh shit! On um, I want to say it was like internet radio. He was just interviewing with somebody where they were where he was out pushing the book. It's it's been around. Let's send this to Chuck. We could do that on his Instagram yeah. or on Twitter. See what he yeah, thinks. Could, could send little excerpts about this. Yeah, because I appreciated that. As someone who technically is not Gen X, you don't need me to wash yeah, yeah, wash I your mean, ass or anything. But you you're a great writer. I need to and wash was, my ass. And it was a very it was very captivating. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Costner. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the stuff. And, you know, this was mm-hmm. just us saying thanks for another piece. All right. And for everyone else, uh, sorry if we're, uh, if we're beaming and sweaty. But until the next time. Be grateful care. you don't have smell-o-vision. <laughs> <laughs>